Well, if you would take your places, let us go ahead and begin. I'd like to welcome you all this afternoon on this beautiful, I think we'd probably have to say the greatest feast day in Lent, wouldn't you? It's hard to top the Blessed Mother and the incarnation of our Lord. So why don't we begin by invoking her powerful intercession with the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a distinct honor for me to welcome you all here uh, this afternoon and to have the wonderful opportunity to once again introduce uh, Dr. Warren H. Carroll, our founding president. Warren Hasty Carroll, I figure I should let you know what the H stands for, right? In case you didn't know, it's Hasty, and that's the way he types. Isn't that true? All right. Well, listen, it used to be they used to say the keys of the typewriter were hot. There was heat emanating from the keys of the old typewriter when you would hear him up there just thundering away on his book. But he was educated at Bates College and received his doctorate in history from Columbia University. His early career included positions at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he worked as an analyst on Soviet propaganda. In 1968, that pivotal year in terms of the year of the Great Revolution, when everyone was leaving and abandoning everything that was traditional, Dr. Carroll converted to the Catholic Church under the influence of his wife, Anne, who is here with us today. And he soon joined the staff of Triumph, a monthly Catholic journal of opinion that was founded by L. Brent Bozell. When Triumph and its summer program came to an end, Dr. Carroll determined to perpetuate its vision by founding a college. In September of 1977, Christendom College opened its doors in Triangle, Virginia, from which it has since moved to this permanent location here in Front Royal, Virginia. Dr. Carroll founded Christendom as a co-educational liberal arts undergraduate college in response to the Second Vatican Council's call for the formation of lay apostles through the liberal arts. He served as the college's first president until 1985, and he served as chairman of the history department until his retirement, I'm putting that in quotes, his retirement in 2002. Dr. Carroll is also known for his many volumes illustrating a deep and profound Catholic interpretation of history. His major work is a multi-volume history of Christendom, not the college, but the social entity. Although I suppose you could write probably five volumes on the history of the college as well. Uh, five volumes have been published to date, and together they present a narrative account of European and Catholic history from antiquity up through the year 1815, and he's presently working on the sixth and final volume. The series is noteworthy for a number of reasons, but above all else for its frank Catholic interpretation of crucial historical events, including the Crusades and the French Revolution. Dr. Carroll has also written a number of very popular single-volume works studying particular eras and issues in European history. Chief among these is his great tome, The Rise and Fall of the Communist Revolution. 
a result of a lifelong study of and opposition to the Soviet communism and Maoist regimes. Also noteworthy, in addition to this fine work, are three volumes treating aspects of the history of Catholic Spain and New Spain. Isabel of Spain, the Catholic Queen, Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Conquest of Darkness, The Last Crusade, which is a study of the Spanish Civil War. And I'm happy to share with you, I don't know if he's embarrassed by this, but just last Saturday was Dr. Carroll's birthday. I believe, was that your 75th? Yeah. Well, many more years, Dr. Carroll. He will be speaking to us uh, this afternoon. The title of his talk is Mr. John Smith's Rest in Peace. Mr. Smith was a man who had a great personal impact on Dr. Carroll, on his religious faith and his political views. And he also had a great impact on many other people here in our nation. We welcome uh, the, this afternoon his wife Mary. Delighted to have you with us. And of course, it would take a long. We'd have it'd be like a litany of the saints to go through all the other names. But you know, obviously Bob and Liz, the brother, everyone else who was here, part of the Smiths family. We welcome you to Christendom. It's delight to have you with us. But we thank all of the members of the Smiths family for gracing us with your presence this afternoon. Without any further ado, let's give a warm welcome to our founding president and dear friend, Dr. Warren Carroll. Thank you very much, Tim. And I should add, speaking about John Schmitz as a Catholic and his relationship to me, he's my godfather. Was my godfather. And second only to my wife, he was responsible for my conversion. <clears throat> In 1960, a presidential election year, I was living in Dallas, Texas. It had a strong Republican Party organization which had elected a congressman and several state legislators and carried Dallas County for the Republican presidential candidate Richard Nixon by a large margin. Four years later, in 1964, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater was running for the Republican presidential nomination. I was his fervent champion, as were most active Dallas Republicans and those they had elected in 1960. My support of Goldwater was based on his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, which urged all candidates to speak out for basic moral principles and to work for smaller government. I did not then know that this book had been written for Goldwater by a man named Carl Hess and co-written by Brent Bozell, Jr., nor that Goldwater, misled by his wife, tended to be pro-abortion. My work for the Republican Party in Dallas caused me to be selected as a Texas delegate to the Republican National Convention meeting in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, where I heard Goldwater give his famous acceptance speech in which he said, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue, end quote. I still believe Barry Goldwater was absolutely right about that, and I thought this, this was what our country needed to hear. In the Goldwater election campaign, I was captain of 10 precincts in Dallas and went door to door soliciting votes for him, as well as posting all over the city his signs that said, in your heart, you know he's right. For a month or more, I worked dawn to dusk with everything I had. 
But then President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, and the news media nationwide trumpeted that the whole city of Dallas was to blame because most of its people didn't like Kennedy. The people of Dallas believed it. People then were not so suspicious of the media as they are now at last becoming. So for Goldwater, so many a man and woman who had told me on their doorstep that they were for Goldwater nevertheless voted for Lyndon Johnson, his opponent, to expiate their imagined guilt. I checked the actual voting records for my precincts against those I had compiled by going door to door, and this was the pattern I found. The result was total disaster for the Republicans in Dallas. I tell this story not only because its consequences led me to the man who is my subject here today, John Schmitz, but also to give you hope if you ever experience a similar massive defeat in a great political enterprise, such as many of you have engaged in already or will engage in someday. We lost everything. Goldwater was defeated in Dallas, along with our Republican congressmen and all our Republican state legislators. We had no winners. Everybody lost. It was the most funereal election night party I've ever attended. People there were sobbing and weeping. But I was just 32 years old, which seems very young to me now. I haven't just had my 75th birthday. And I learned from my main heritage never to give up, which is why you have this college today. So I looked around the country to find, to find a place where Goldwater triumphed decisively. Found it and pulled up stakes and went there to live. It was Orange County, California, which had become a major center of American conservatism. Then, as now, California was the most populous state in the United States of America, with a budget larger than that of many nations. Its people were passionately committed to political causes, and their conservatives had taken greatly to Goldwater. Don't judge the California of the 1960s by Arnold Schwarzenegger, but rather by Ronald Reagan, who was elected governor of California in 1966. Despite some critical things I will say today about Reagan's governorship, I hold that he was one of the greatest presidents in American history, one of the three best of all time, along with Washington and Lincoln. Reagan was the winner of the Cold War, the man who defeated the Communist Empire. Ronald Reagan was also for Barry Goldwater. His speech on Goldwater's behalf was the highlight of the Goldwater campaign. So California was a good place to be in the 1960s for a man wishing to influence the American political process and change the country and the world. Arriving there without a job, I looked for one in the political sphere. I had developed at that time a very strange historical theory, don't ask me about it, it was all wrong, in which the assassination of Kennedy was a kind of signal or forewarning of the establishment of totalitarianism in the United States. I got on one of the first television talk shows conducted by a black man named Louis Lomax and expounded this theory, which saw Ronald Reagan then preparing to run for governor of California as the man who would save our country from this dire fate. I was not far wrong in this. Watching that talk show was a young man of 34, only two years older than I, a former Marine aviator and officer who had just been elected to the California State Senate from Orange County. His name was John George Schmitz, and he was Catholic, though I did not know it at the time. After all, neither was I then. Schmitz liked what I had to say and called me up and hired me as his assistant. John Schmitz shared my political views and goals. 
He had said in an interview with Life magazine, commenting on Goldwater's defeat and Orange County's support of him, recalling General MacArthur's comeback against the communists in Korea in 1950. I hope Orange, quoting John Schmidt, I hope Orange County can be the Pusan perimeter from which we will win back our country, end quote. This was exactly what I wanted to find when I left Dallas. John Schmitz was to become my godfather when I entered the Catholic Church. In a sense, he is the godfather of this college. Do not let his memory die. Rather, use him as a role model as you go forth into the kinds of battles he and I fought together. I pause here to introduce to you his widow, Mary Schmitz, who is my godmother. John Schmitz used to call her the most beautiful grandmother you will ever see. And also, I want to introduce his son-in-law, Bob Sirkovich, member of our college board of directors, whom I can count on to the last ditch. Bob, please stand. <clears throat> and also to introduce to you his vibrant daughter, Liz, whose birth I vividly remember. Liz, please stand. Those of you who are fortunate enough to attend Life on Tap after our December board meeting already know Bob and Liz. also want to introduce to you Terry Mannion, uh, who is Schmitz's daughter, and Chris Mannion, who's been a member of our faculty teaching political science here at Crystal College. Terry and Chris, will you please stand? <laughs> talk to these wonderful people after this lecture. They always had like to talk about John Schmitz. Some of John Schmitz's other children and grandchildren are also here with us today. Will they please stand? John Schmitz was a true Catholic hero. He was the bravest man I have ever known. He once disarmed a knife-wielding criminal with his bare hands. He was above all outspoken. He told the Jesuit priest that he had attended a Jesuit university, Marquette in Wisconsin, but nevertheless had returned to the church. He added, there's nothing wrong with the Jesuits that a good inquisition couldn't cure. Schmitz's humor was rapier keen. As we shall see, it did not desert him even on his deathbed. He once described the position he played in public life as that of right butt. He explained, the way you play this position is to tell it like it is. Uh, then everybody will sidle up to you and whisper in your ear, John, you're right, but. Now, if I'm wrong, I want to be told so and set straight. But if I'm right, then it seems to me there should be no buts about it. Then every, uh, then, um, but if I, uh, there are no buts about it. Uh, what is right should be done, cost what it may. It is right to keep promises and wrong to break them. I have tried to keep my promises to my constituents and believe that to the very best of my ability, I have kept them. He had kept them. John Schmitz never broke a campaign promise. The introduction to the commemorative volume uh, about him, published in California in 1974, entitled Stranger in the Arena, is headed Promises to Keep. Here's that volume. Maybe somebody can eventually get Christian College to reprint that. Do 
Von Schmitz's best political slogan was keep the man who keeps his word. How many politicians like this do we have today or did we ever have? Let John himself describe the keynote of his life in politics in Stranger in the Arena. Quote, as a boy growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I always remember the impression made on me by a large diorama in that city's public museum. It showed an Indian hunting party driving a herd of buffalo over a cliff. On and on toward inevitable destruction, the buffalo rushed and plunged, carefully prodded and directed by the pursuing savages, presumably convinced in their bovine brains that only in the direction of the cliff's edge lay safety. But one buffalo was not taken in. He stood at bay, refusing to join in the stampede for death. Yelling Indians circled around him, piercing his thick hide with their arrows. Stubbornly, head down, horns extended, that one buffalo would not be driven. The Indians might kill him, but if he died, he would go down facing his enemy, not running away to disaster with his fellows to die in a crumpled heap at the foot of the cliff while the hunters camped capered in triumph high above. What I said to myself, even as a boy, was, it would be a lot better to be that one buffalo standing alone and defiant than to be any of those running over the cliff. But to the other buffalo, the lone defiant one seems to be very foolish indeed, for he seems to be asking for destruction, while they think they are headed for safety. But they are wrong, and he is right. The life of John Schmitz was a replay of that scene with the buffalo. He stood alone and defiant, and he was right. Also in Stranger in the Arena, he said, quote, This scene and my reaction to it in many ways symbolizes my whole political career. For I saw and see my beloved country being driven toward destruction. I resolved long ago to fight that trend and that tide, knowing that it would mean that I would be singled out for special vehement attack. And I'm determined to go on fighting in the most effective ways possible so long as breath remains in my body. For America was not meant to be a craven collectivist society. It was not meant to slaughter innocent unborn children by the millions. It was not meant to praise and aid foreign and domestic tyrants. And above all, it was not meant to enshrine a rubber morality, bending at every push, and to deny the existence of lasting truth. Truth exists, one of the watchwords of Christendom College. Like I say, all of this education can be summed up in five words. Truth exists, the incarnation happened. This is a good day to repeat the last part of that. <clears throat> Do you see now why I call John Schmitz our godfather? Hear him and reflect on his words. Let us take our marching orders for the 21st century from John Schmitz. When my father met John Schmitz toward the end of my father's life, he said to my mother, I've just met the next governor of California. But now we have Arnold Schwarzenegger. Growing up in Wisconsin during the years Joseph McCarthy was its senator, Schmitz became a great admirer of that anti-communist crusader. This admiration remained throughout his life. In many ways, Schmitz patterned his political, political career after McCarthy. In Congress, Schmitz served on the House Internal Security, formerly Un-American Activities Committee, as most of you know, Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin has become an enormous boogeyman to the left, which has popularized all sorts of fantastic myths about how he wanted to be, and almost was, dictator of America. As one who lived through Senator McCarthy's entire public career, 
following it very closely. I can tell you there is no trace of truth in that myth. There is an old saying, beloved of historians, that truth is the daughter of time. As time passed with McCarthy long dead, Arthur Herman, who teaches history at Georgia Mason University right here in Virginia, in the year 2000 published a biography of McCarthy which finally set the record straight about him. To quote what I think is the best passage in this book, quote, we need to remember that during the, that entire period, from 1947 to 1958, no American citizens were interrogated without benefit of legal counsel, none were arrested and detained without due judicial process, and none went to jail without trial. All through the so-called worst of the McCarthy period, the Communist Party itself was never outlawed. Membership in the party was never declared a crime. And it continued to maintain public offices, publish books in the Daily Worker, and to recruit new members. McCarthy's own committee in the Senate, the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, which he chaired for less than two years, had a specific duty to investigate communism in government and among government employees. It had done so before he became chairman, and it did so after he left under Senator John McClellan and Bobby Kennedy. The men and women McCarthy targeted, rightly or wrongly, as communists or communist sympathizers, all shared that common characteristic. They were federal employees and public servants, and therefore, McCarthy and his supporters argued, they ought to be held accountable to a higher standard than other American citizens, end quote. I had the privilege of reviewing this fine book by Arthur Herman and Faith and Reason under the title The Daughter of Time. There will be a later lecture in this series on the truth about Senator Joseph McCarthy. In keeping with his admiration for McCarthy, Schmitz joined the John Birch Society, another boogeyman of the left. He always loved to serve where the enemy's fire was hottest. When Ronald Reagan become, became governor of California, he was a complete political novice. Political naivete was burned out of him in his first two years in Sacramento, the state capital. Reagan supported one of the first permissive abortion bills in the nation and signed it into law in his first year in office, the only action in his political life that he ever apologized for. John Schmitz told him that the clause in the new law permitting abortion for the sake of the mental health of the mother was a loophole the abortions would drive trucks through. But Reagan replied, the doctors of California would never do that. But of course they did do it. Later, Schmitz got a bill to the California legislature allowing parents to inspect the sex education materials that were being used in public schools, a right still denied in many states, and to withdraw their sons and daughters from those classes if they wished. Reagan signed Schmitz's bill and resolutely vetoed all attempts to repeal it. That law is still in effect is known in California as the Schmitz Act. John Schmitz's finest hour came at the end of the legislative session in the spring of 1968, when, like the buffalo in the diorama, he stood alone and hard beset against all his party in the legislature. The Democrats, led by Assembly boss Jesse Unruh, known as Big Daddy, had been passing heavier and heavier taxes, which the Republicans, including John Schmitz, had promised to stop. Unruh somehow convinced Reagan and the Republican legislative leadership that they should support another huge tax increase for the next year's budget. 
UNRWA INTENDED FOR THIS SPECTACULAR REVERSAL AND VIOLATION OF THEIR PROMISES TO DISCREDIT CALIFORNIA REPUBLICANS FOREVER. BUT AS I HAVE SAID, JOHN SCHMITZ WOULD NOT BREAK CAMPAIGN PROMISES. THE ROLL WAS CALLED. UNRWA INSISTED THAT EVERY REPUBLICAN IN THE STATE LEGISLATURE, BOTH SENATE AND ASSEMBLY, VOTE FOR THIS TAX AND THE BUDGET BILL THAT INCLUDED IT. AND THEY ALL DID VOTE FOR IT, EXCEPT JOHN SCHMITZ. The Democrats held up the official announcement of the vote until they could get John Smith's vote, but they never got it. <clears throat> they tried for hours. His Republican colleagues pleaded with him to vote with them, but John Schmitz had iron in his soul, and he remembered the buffalo in the painting. They've done everything but threaten my wife and kids, he said after hours of pressure. Have you called home lately? One of his unfortunate colleagues asked, let's hope it was simply an exceedingly uh, ill-timed joke. Unruh finally had to give up. The politically irresistible force had met the immovable object. Can you imagine what John Schmitz would do if you were in Congress now when an abortion bill comes up? If any of you ever hold public office, you can hardly do better than to follow his example that day in 1968, all the way, alone against his party in the world, at bay like the buffalo in the painting. On a later occasion, John Schmidt spectacularly defeated Big Daddy Unruh in a face-to-face -face confrontation, which I personally witnessed. In 1967, the quaint custom still survived in the California legislature of literally stopping the clock on the last legal day of the legislative session, which was a Friday, and of carrying on the session through Saturday and even into Sunday. At 6 o'clock Sunday evening, the annual school supplemental appropriations bill, a 64-page document, was presented to an exhausted Senate which had been in continuous session for more than 50 hours with less than 30 minutes to study it before voting on it. Senator Clark Bradley of San Jose and Schmitz therefore voted against it, as they always voted against any bill they were not given time to read. Buried in the middle of the lengthy text, was a two-line clause striking out certain numbered sections of the California Education Code. Not effective until 1971, three years later. The content of these sections was not identified. In fact, they were all the sections which set limits on school tax rates, rates which could not be increased without a vote of the people of the school district. These votes, called school tax override, <coughs> overrides, were more and more being rejected by the overtaxed people. The effect of this hidden clause was therefore to remove all limits on school taxes after 1970 and to allow California school boards, under the pressure of teachers and school administrators, to raise the already sky-high school tax rates as much as they wished, with the people having nothing to say about it. Several weeks later, apparently pers persuaded that the schools had to have the supplementary appropriation which was the main purpose of this bill to provide, Governor Reagan signed it, even though he knew by then what UNRWA had done. Early the next year, Schmitz introduced a bill to repeal UNRWA's strikeout clause and thereby keep the limits on school taxes. This bill passed in the Senate, where there was well-justified resentment at UNRWA's trickery and deception, but it died in the Assembly Education Committee, dominated by a majority of former school administrators. The next year, Schmitz tried again. Once more, the bill passed in the Senate but was blocked in the Assembly Education Committee. The Republican chairman of that committee was no help, since he favored the removal of school tax limits. 
the state news media would not print a word about the issue, just as they had never printed a word about the unruh deal to get every Republican legislative vote for the statewide tax increase, though it was common knowledge in the legislature. What UNRU had done, what we, tried, we were trying to undo, had laboriously to be explained to people by letter and word of mouth. It was not the easiest situation in the world to explain. As John Schmitz's assistant, I helped to explain it. Gradually, the people began to understand. Grassroots committees sprang up to fight for the repeal bill. And the California Real Estate Association, well aware of what the removal of school tax limits would do to property taxes, gave us much help. Legislators reported that they received more mail on this issue than on any other in the 1969 session, though the media blackout continued right through to the end of the fight. A blizzard of letters from constituents put enough pressure on the members of the Assembly Education Committee, which had the bill, even the former school administrators, to make them eager for a compromise. Assemblyman Bob Burke of Orange County, Schmitz's district, gave them a compromise by introducing in the Assembly the same bill as Schmitz's and then amending it to keep school tax limits for, for two more years, to 1973 instead of 1971. In that form, they approved it, and the Assembly passed it. By so doing, they lost control of the bill. The Senate restored it to its original form as a total repeal of the UNRU trick, keeping the school tax limits indefinitely. The bill then came back to the Assembly floor on the last day of the 1969 session, a situation in which its supporters could demand a roll call vote. The majority of the Assembly, including Jesse UNRU, dared not face that. The most powerful and influential lobby in the state capitol, the public education lobby, we used to talk about how the oil and metal and all these things did not have the big lobby that public education did. Um, they were put, the most powerful and influential lobby in the state capitol, the public education lobby, was pulling hard one way, and most of their constituents were pulling hard the other way. The whole idea of the trick at the beginning had been to cut off the school tax limits so they would quietly disappear years later, with no one knowing what had happened or who was responsible. I cherish the memory of Unruh rising from his seat, his face covered with confusion, saying, anything I said about this would probably be the wrong thing, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> then opponents of the bill made a highly unusual motion to strike the roll call vote from the file. The motion failed by a narrow margin. The vote on it was rather roll call. Another motion was made to expunge from the record the vote on the motion to strike from the file. It was the only time in John Schmitz's service in the California legislature that a roll call vote in either house of the legislature was expunged from the record. Most of the assembly, including Unruh, then voted for Schmitz's bill. Some of its most vehement opponents actually went back to their constituents and claimed credit for its passage. Because of the expunging in the record, where they actually stood could not be officially proved, though we had an unofficial hand-copied tally of the vote taken in the assembly gallery when it was cast. The victory belonged to John Schmitz, who thereby proved himself a brilliant legislative technician. After years of faithful service in the California State Senate, John Schmitz became a national figure when George Wallace, the Alabamian who was the presidential nominee of the American Party, was shot in Laurel, Maryland in 1972. 
The shot paralyzed Wallace for the rest of his life. So the American Party came to John Schmitz. That year, the Republican candidate, Richard Nixon, incumbent president, had gone to communist China and made up with its communists after a lifetime of opposition to their bloody regime. Most people hailed this blatant betrayal, but not John Schmitz. When asked what he thought about Nixon's trip and policy reversal, Schmitz replied with his rapier humor, I don't object so much to his going to China, but only to the return trip. As the Watergate scandal was to show, the country and even Nixon himself would have been better off if he'd never come back. <clears throat> As John Smith wrote in Stranger in the Arena, quote, there was a third man who ran for president in that potential election of 1972, the year when Watergate happened. But the American people saw only the tip of the iceberg of that looming scandal at the time. The year when the winner, Richard Nixon, won by the second largest percentage of the popular vote in our nation's history, but just two years later was forced to resign. The year when the nation's majority party, the Democrats, massively repudiated their own nominee, George McGovern, the candidate of rebellious youth. The people in 32 of our 50 states had an alternative to the man of Watergate, uh, and the man of abortion, acid, and amnesty. More than one million Americans voters chose that alternative, a man most of them knew little about, a man most of them had never heard of before that presidential campaign. That third man was your author, though I quite literally had not the slightest expectation of it until less than a week before the convention that was to nominate me for president began its sessions. Fordoomed though it was, the effort our scratch campaign team and our friends in those 32 states made was well worth making. I do not flatter myself that any significant number of those million Americans who voted for me would, under normal circumstances, have chosen a congressman of just two and a half years' experience to be president of the United States. What they were doing was registering their protest in the most direct way available against the debasement of a political system which took them for granted, used them as pawns, scorned the values that meant most to them, while constantly trying to make them docile camp followers, always obedient to the stick and hungry for the carrot. Few of them foresaw the full ramifications of what aid, but they were well aware that the Nixon administration in 1972 was morally capable of something like what aid. Let me, inter end quote. Let me interrupt the reading from Schmitz's political autobiography at this point to tell you of one event that happened to us which vividly illustrates his point. Shortly before Election Day 1972, a man from the Nixon campaign approached our Western Press Secretary, Secretary Nelson Ross, with a false press release and a bribe of no less than $30,000 in cash to issue it. Everyone who worked for John Schmitz shared his principles. Nelson Ross, not a wealthy man, he'd never seen $30,000 in cash in his life, turned it down with contempt. He would never even tell us what was in the false press release. But we learned later that Nixon was afraid that Nixon was afraid that Schmitz's vote would cost him the electoral vote for California, which could be decisive in the election. During the buildup of the Watergate revelations, Nixon famously told the American people, I'm not a crook. So Richard Nixon really was a crook as the whole country was soon to learn from the Watergate's hat, we have the proof. Resuming the quotation from John Schmitz's political autobiography, 
for, for the moral relativist creed which the McGovern Democrats openly proclaimed was in a different but not fundamentally dissimilar fashion also written on the hearts of the men around the president. McGovern and his long-haired followers cried, anything goes. The earnest young crew cut, man of creep, that's the best acronym I think I know, the Committee for the Re-election of the President, said the same to one another, only they said it strictly in private. It was this pervasive hypocrisy, this deep rottenness of moral decay, that the one million Americans who voted for me in 1972 were, I believe, primarily protesting by their vote. Tragically, their protest was almost completely ignored. The news blackout of my campaign continued through most of the post-election analysis, with the notable exception of a very penetrating commentary by Kevin Phelps. Theodore H. White wrote his entire book about the making of the president in 1972 without so much as mentioning those one million people, except in a statistical table in his appendix. It matters very little to me personally whether Theodore H. White chooses to comment on my efforts or not. But surely one million Americans deserve at least a passing nod from him as he tells the story of the 1972 election. I regard my 1972 campaign for president as one high point in a career of service to our country, which brought me to this unexpected peak clearly and inevitably as a result of my long-standing refusal to float with the tide of the times. It was, is, and will remain my purpose to stem that tide, which, if unchecked, will inevitably bring about the destruction of everything we had known and loved in the United States of America." End quote. During his presidential campaign, Schmitz announced a three-point platform of outspoken, simple candor. One, in foreign affairs, always treat your friends better than your enemies. Two, we should never go to war unless we plan on winning, as we did not in Vietnam. The war there was in its height. Three, those who should work, those who work should live better than those who won't. That was the way John Schmitz's mind worked. John Schmitz is no longer with us. Now he is with God. But you are with us, and you have your lifetimes ahead of you. These are his marching orders to you. At this point in his political autobiography, Schmitz told again the story of the buffalo and the diorama, which would not plunge over the cliff. Can we stand alone and defiant as he did and imagine the buffalo and the diorama doing? Can we meet the 21st century in battle array as he met the 20th? While John Schmitz was in Congress, he introduced the first pro-life anti-abortion amendment to the Constitution to override the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision and spoke and voted against the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970, which promoted and encouraged abortion and contraception all over America and the world. As Schmidt said, quote, when I found that none of my colleagues seemed willing to take up the gauntlet and lead the charge against this pernicious and portentous issue, I did so. John Schmitz was always willing to lead the charge. I am not proposing John Schmitz for canonization. He was a sinner, like all of us since Adam. But he was the noblest as well as the bravest man I've known in my 75 years. I can only say of him as the soldier and historian Bernal Diaz, author of the true history of the conquest of Mexico, said of Hernan Cortez, who led the conquest of the Aztec Empire built on human sacrifice and triumphed against odds of 10,000 to 1, with whom Bernal Diaz marched to the gates of hell 
I always saw, quote, I always saw him in battle stepping in along with us. He was a good cavalier and very devout to the Holy Virgin and to St. Paul and other saints. God pardoned him his sins and me mine. I saved the same of John Schmitz. Late in life, Schmitz contracted prostate cancer, which can be fatal, though he has long periods of remission. So he felt well enough to celebrate his last Christmas with his grandchildren. Then, as the cancer began to spread through Rowley's body in 2001, his son Joe told him that death was approaching and asked if he had some last words he would like carved on his tombstone. John Schmidt shot back on his deathbed. I got a million bolts of present, and that was a lot. I used to be alive, but now I'm not. This was a man of the last of death. As a Marine officer, John Schmitz was buried in Arlington Cemetery with a 21-gun salute. I gave his funeral oration on a windy hillside where an inscription on his tombstone now recounts his life's achievements. Some of you might wish to visit it and say a prayer for his noble soul. I hope you do, and I'm sure Bob and Lynch Servish would be glad to take you there. I want to tell you a little, little about his funeral. John Schmitz preferred Latin in the liturgy, so the hymns sung at his funeral were in Latin. Dies Irae, Panis Angelicus, Agnus Dei, and in Paradisum. For the scripture readings, he chose Revelation 19, 11, 16, which describes the destruction of the unbelievers by a white horse ridden by faithful and true. And 1 Timothy 2, 8, 13, which says, quote, If we had died with him, we shall also live with him. If we hold on to the end, we shall reign with him. End quote. John Schmitz had held on to the end. When John Schmitz crossed the threshold of heaven, completing his mission on earth, I believe that God said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant.